Please turn in your Bible if you have one. It's going to be on the screen as well. Going to begin reading, unlike what the bulletin says, instead of uh, chapter 19, verse 28, we're going to begin in chapter 19, verse 11. I warned you, I I gave you the encouraging word. We're going to be reading the Scriptures. It's going to be God's own word spoken to us. Luke 19, 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your minah has earned ten minahs. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your minah has earned five minahs. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your manah, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the manah from him and give it to him who has ten manahs. But they said to him, Master, he has ten manahs. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass... When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, on the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. 
So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were attentive to hear him. Take the narrative that we just read. Take the template of this narrative. Take all the imagery that's found on it. Lift it off the page of Scripture and look at the world around you as it is now behaving. And it is, is it not a perfect replay? As it is, by the way, in every generation to one degree or another, it is to, in every generation a replay of this template. There is God's Son God's Son. We read earlier Psalm 118. He is the chief cornerstone. He is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. To whom is He a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense? Is it not to those who have a vested interest in the world system as it presently is set in place? Is it not to those who derive their power and their status and their money? And here Jesus shows up 
And to whom is he a threat? Who is it that is frightened by Jesus? It is the people. Would it not be logical to expect that the religious leadership of Israel, the people best versed in the Hebrew Scriptures, the people whose very ancestral heritage is about the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, you can say this with me, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's their heritage. That's their heritage. And many other spokesmen, Samuel, Aaron, others. Would they not, could we not logically expect them to embrace the coming king, the coming promised king, who represents the united testimony of all those people? And yet, they are the very tip of the spear of the opposition to God's own Son, the one who is the fulfillment, who has been fulfilling the Scriptures before their very eyes for at least three years. Just yesterday, I saw on the Internet a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful testimony, and it was a woman dressed in a hijab, who was from this nation of Kuwait, raised as a Muslim, tried and tried and tried and tried, had memorized the Quran, had done, and never, never was it good enough for her father or for Allah. Never was it good enough. And finally, upon the loss of her family, she was hugged. She was embraced by a Christian woman who then invited her to church. And she went because for the first time she had actually felt a loving embrace. And she goes to this church and the scripture reading is the words of Jesus in the synagogue of Nazareth as they hand him the scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to set the captive free. And he reads, Jesus reads that passage and then rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And she ran into Jesus' arms. She ran into a welcome embrace that she had sought and sought and sought and sought. So here is this woman subject to so much deprivation and mistreatment. Through Who is it that's worshiping Jesus? Who is it that's crying out, quoting Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Who is it? Is it the Jewish leadership? No. It's the peasants. It's those stinky tax collectors and women of the streets. It's the people that are looked down on whom God has swept into His own embrace. The parable at the beginning of the passage that we read, by the way, there's an historic precedent to what Jesus says in this parable, in this scenario that He lays out. You may remember 
from Matthew chapter 2. The Magi come to Jerusalem and they inquire of King Herod the Great. While we were in Mesopotamia, Digers Euphrates Valley, way over there, a couple of years ago, we saw a star, a bright representation of God, and that we knew that meant God's Son, that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, had been born. And here we are. Would you please tell us, sir, where he is so we can go and worship him? What? By the way, Herod the Great wasn't even Jewish. He was an Edomite who had been given the land of Israel to govern by the Romans. I mean, he superficially converted to Judaism, but he went to the religious leaders. Where is it that the Messiah is to be born? Well, we're told in Micah 5, 2, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among all the villages of Judah, from out of you shall come forth the one to be ruler of my people whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. Oh, by the way, you're not his true point of origin. Eternity past is his true point of origin. He is God come in the flesh. And so Herod goes to the Magi and says to them, by the way, there, there were three gifts. There, were, there was probably an enormous number of Magi. All of Jerusalem, it says, was frightened when they came. And he tells them, well, Bethlehem. And oh, by the way, when you find him, would you let me know about it so I can come and worship him too? And so as they leave Jerusalem, that bright shining object appears to them again. It leads them to a specific house in Bethlehem, hovers over that house. I would suggest to you this is the Shekinah glory, the glory of God. And they go into the house and they worship Jesus. They worship him. And then they are warned by God, don't go back to Herod with the word. And so they leave. They go out a, another way. And Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, is warned by an angel in a dream, get out of Dodge. <laughs> and so they, he takes the child, and Mary. And by the way, I say he was two years old because the word there is for a two, uh, young child, not an, an infant. And they go to Egypt. Well, while they're in Egypt, for whoever knows how long, three or four years perhaps, Herod the Great dies. Well, then his son becomes the king. Actually, he's ready to become the king. And the whole lot of the Jews say, we don't want this guy, we don't want this guy, we don't want... So he made the trip to Rome and got, officially got the kingdom, the Judah part of the kingdom handed over to him. And when he came back, he did exactly what is described here. He rewarded those who had aligned themselves with him and he killed those who stood against him. And that is why when Joseph heard 
about the death of Herod, and he came back to Judea, and he found out this guy was the ruler. He said, okay, this guy's a maniac. We're not staying. And he got also a warning from an angel, and they went to Nazareth, their original hometown. And so what we see in this parable of the Manaz is actually something that had happened about 30 years before. But what do we see here? We see a king to whom a kingdom should, will be coming, and there is opposition to him. There are people that say, I do not want him to rule over me. We do not want him. We do not want him. We do not want him. What is Jesus' experience, especially with the Jewish leadership? We do not want this fellow. Why? He is a threat. He is a threat to our status. He is a threat to the money machine we have turned the temple into. He is a threat. And he comes down off of the mountain, uh, chapter 19, verse 28. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He sends the men into the the village, (coughs) telling them, (coughs) telling them, you will find an unbroken Donkey colt. You'll find the donkey and the colt beside her. And we know that from Matthew's gospel, but in Luke's gospel, it only mentions the colt. This is an untrained animal. Anybody here ever trained horses, donkeys? Uh, How docile are untrained? You know, I mean, this is an aside here. Where do horses have their eyes and donkeys this is this really is they have them on the side of their head why because they are a prey animal and so god has given them eyes on the side of their head so they can see almost 360 degrees around them so they can see a predator sneaking up from behind them and they can flee and so when you're training a colt either donkey or horse, where are our eyes? They're on the front of our head. Predators have the eyes on the front of their head. That horse colt, donkey colt, sees us as cougars. And so that's why you sack out the animal, you do all this stuff, and what happens? Most of the time you get on their back the first time. They're Why? Because a cougar just jumped on my back. And yet what happens with this unbroken donkey's colt? They lead it to Jesus. They place their clothes on him. They even, one of the training methods with horse and donkey colt is you sack them out. You whack them. You actually whack them with cloth and stuff like, it's not going to hurt them, but it just, and it's to get them to call, okay, this is frightening, but it's not hurting it's a, and yet they put their clothes on the back of this unbroken colt, and he's just, and they assist Jesus onto his back, and then Jesus just rides the, now see, in the first century, everybody would have known what I just said to you. Everybody knew the training techniques for horses, donkeys, so forth. It was just part of the culture. And so as the original readers of Luke's gospel, oh, Wow. That's amazing. And so he is now riding this colt, and as he is going along, the people are taking their 
outer garments off and throwing them on the road. And we know from other gospels they're taking palm branches, which is a kingdom emblem because it is perfect. a palm branch is perfect in its symmetry. And they're laying those on the road and they're holding them. They're, and they're, what are they crying out? Blessed is he who comes in the name, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are declaring him, these peasants for the most part, who are welcoming a massive crowd, they are welcoming him as their king, Messiah. As their king. And the Jewish leaders are there. I mean, we're leading up to the Passover. Jerusalem is packed to overflowing with people from all over the empire. It is packed. The Jewish leaders are out there. And what is their response? And some of the Pharisees called to him, to Jesus, from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. They couldn't be speaking the truth more clearly, accurately than they are. I will not stop them from crying out the truth. I am your king. I am your king. What had he said in the parable of the Manaz? The king had gotten permission to receive the kingdom. He received the kingdom. He's now coming back, but his opposition, his opposition is there, who had fought against him. Let me ask you a question. Has Jesus of Nazareth been embraced by the world as our king? Only by those peasants who know, by God's help, know they need a deliverer, a savior, a king who welcome him, who welcome him. By the way, Am I, have I just disqualified every wealthy person on the planet? No, I haven't. Because the very first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of it. There was a wealthy, influential fellow by the name of Nicodemus who came to Jesus in John chapter 3, a member of the Sanhedrin. Jesus calls him the rabbi of Israel. But he came to Jesus with spiritually empty pockets, and Jesus filled them. There was a fellow, Saul of Tarsus, who, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, thought at one time that he had full pockets. And then the more he encountered the testimony on behalf of Christ, the more he realized how empty his pockets were until Jesus face-planted him in front of the gates of Damascus and yanked him into the kingdom. So everyone can be a peasant. <laughs> we all, when we come to God, we are all beggars. But he fills our hand with forgiveness and his own righteousness attached to our account. 
But what we see here with this template, with this picture here, is exactly what we see before our eyes right now. And ladies and gentlemen, what does it say in Psalm 118? What does it say? Will it be suggested here by Jesus? What do we find so often in the prophetic Scripture? The world will be judged. Jesus will settle the hash of every single person who has ever lived. You either can have your hash settled, (laughs) you either can have your sin and guilt issues addressed by Christ on the cross. When Jesus went there, he was going there as our substitute. As our substitute. And God the Father poured out on him the, all of the lake of fire experience due to the entire human race and in an entire eternity, poured it out on him on the cross. And as I've noted repeatedly, as I make this statement in the past, the Nicene Creed, the first line of the Nicene Creed has it perfectly. He is he, Jesus, is true God of true God, very God of very God, in the old-fashioned way of saying it, true God of true God, true man of true man, joined together in one person, not half man, half God, fully God, fully man, joined together in one person. Therefore, the value of who he is is greater than his, the weight of His glory is greater than the entire human race. And so He is qualified to pay sin's penalty for all of us. That is how great His esteem is in heaven's eyes. His value is that He paid sin's penalty for every one of us. So that all we have to do is say, Father, I don't have anything to bring to create a welcome for me. In fact, I've got a whole lot of negatives. A whole lot of negatives. But I understand that your son paid the penalty that I, sh- I would be paying for an eternity in hell. Please, may I have that benefit of that? And 100% of the time, God's reply is, Yes, with gladness. That's called the gospel. That's good news. Verse 41, the narrative continues. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. What does Jesus know about Jerusalem and its leadership? He knows they will not repent. He knows destruction awaits them. And in fact, 37 years later, this is 33 A.D., in 70 A.D., the Romans would come over the walls of Jerusalem tear down the walls of Jerusalem, tear down the temple, crucify about 100,000 Jews outside the walls, and sell the rest of them into slavery. Jesus knows this. 
Why will that happen? Because they, will re- they have refused to bow the knee to him, the one who would have been their defender. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What day? What is Jesus referencing here? I would suggest to you that he's referencing a prophecy. Daniel chapter 9. God the Holy Spirit pushed through Daniel's pen (laughs) this outrageous, fantastic prophecy. There will be 69 weeks of years. A week of years is seven, 69 times seven. Week, the word week, W-E-E-K, is an old English word meaning seven. <laughs> there will be 69 sevens of years, 483 years. Seven times 69 is 483. By the way, these are lunar years, 360-day years. All ancient cultures had a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. If you ask anybody in any of these cultures how many days are there in a year, they would have said 360. So 483 times 360 is 173,880 days. From the day of the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem till Messiah comes will be 69 weeks of years, 173,880 days. What day was the proclamation issued to rebuild Jerusalem? Thank you, Lord, obviously engineered by God. All ancient cultures were maniacal about not losing a day. And so they would keep in the government records the astronomical signs, everything they could to make sure what, that they didn't lose a day. And the Persians were especially maniacal about this. And because of that, we know the day the command was given by Cyrus the Persian, I believe it was, might have been a different emperor, to Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem was March the 5th, 444 B.C. That's the day. Now, if you count 173,880 days, that brings you to Monday, March the 30th, 33 A.D. The day of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll let you ask me afterwards where I got all that info rather than take sermon time. But this your day when your king, your Messiah would come prophesied hundreds of years before. Here I am. But Jesus isn't gloating. He's weeping. If you had known, even you, religious leaders, are supposed to be such great Bible students, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, your shalom, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, which 37 years later it would happen, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And here I am, your king. And he weeps over the city. He weeps. And then he goes in and does what as the king of Israel has a right to do. And the God of Israel has a right to do. He cleanses the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He sets the doves free. (laughs) All of this because they had turned a place of worshiping God into a den of thieves. He went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. There's no such thing to be found in the Hebrew Scriptures. Saying to them, Jesus saying to them, shouting out to them, It is written... My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people sought to destroy him. Why? Because he was a threat to them. He's their Savior. Don't they know that? Yes. The maniacal thought in the head of every person who has not entrusted themselves to God's mercy is, but I will get away with it. Many, many, many Jews turn to Jesus. In fact, Jews for Jesus ministry tells me that until about 180 A.D., the majority of Christians were of a Jewish background. But the majority did not. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to him. And every time they tried to corner him, they ran away with their tails between their legs. But is that not what we see today? Yes. The encouragement we can draw from this is, ladies and gentlemen, the king who has gone off into his father's house and receiving the kingdom, when he comes back, will bring to those who have entrusted to him what? I gave you, Jesse, five minas. What have you done with them? I gave you, Bob, ten manas. What have you done with them? I gave you, Dorothy, twelve manas. What have he will come purposing to reward us. Those who have come to him with empty pockets. And he will not only fill them with his own forgiveness and divine righteousness, but overwhelming blessing. But then he will say to those who have rejected the offer of divine mercy, you don't want mercy? I will give you justice. You don't want that. 
You don't want that. As we come to the Lord's table, what are we celebrating? We are celebrating the reality that is at the core of the new covenant found in Jeremiah 31. Jesus will say, this is my body broken for you. That unleavened bread, that and leaven was a, 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 an emblem, a representation of sin. This represents me. This is my body broken for you. This cup, the contents of this cup, this is my blood of the new covenant. It ushers you into the promise in Jeremiah 31. I will, I will, I will. Your sins and iniquities remember no more. And we are commemorating that reality right now. Bob, could you 